Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Philosophy Guy. Hello to new listeners and longtime listeners. So today's episode, we have another interview-based episode, and it's sticking with that trend of me occasionally doing political episodes. So we get into a political topic, and I also made it a point to continue the trend of trying to keep the political topics around issues that aren't super divisive, uh, and that's what we did today. It's around political trust and in that type of thing and, and civil trust in our institutions and discourse and polarization, that type of thing. But I will say, so my audio in the interview, it's still good, still listenable. It's just not up to par of what it usually is. I forgot to put the shades down in my little studio area. And although that sounds like such a small thing, when it comes to audio, it plays a big effect. So it's a little bit more echoey when I talk on my end. Uh, but the audio is still good. I just want to say that, say that because I want people to know that my interviews I try to keep them with good audio, so this is just a one-time thing as long as I don't do make the mistake again. But anyway, so today's guest is Kevin Vallier. He is the associate the He is the associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University University and director at uh, Bowling Green State as well in their program of philosophy, politics, economics, and law. He is the author of Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation, and he's also the author of the forthcoming book, Must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society. And in this episode, and also I guess in that book as well, Kevin tackles kind of the key problem for political theory in our current situation, the, uh, the that Americans today are far less likely to trust their institutions and each other. Then in decades past, we see an increase in polarization, for example, and distrust and basically just a lot of conflict. So Kevin's focus is on how diverse people can cooperate despite their differences. And he puts forward the idea that why liberalism is the answer to our contemporary culture wars. As he sees it, our liberal social democracy with its institutions of freedom of association, the market, the welfare state, and democratic political arrangements is the only form of government with the unique capacity to sustain social and political trust between these diverse persons, preventing any one ideology or faith from dominating all the others. So we kind of discuss around that, the cause of polarization, what it means, the cause of distrust, what that means, possible, he puts forward possible ideas, how we can fix that distrust, which I think is an important conversation, especially around politics and discourse and our culture, kind of the broad way view of how we think about these things and how we think about our politics and maybe recognizing our biases. So I think the conversation is really helpful for that. So I want you all to tune in for that. But as always, before we start the interview, before we get going, check out the the Patreon bonus episode feed so you can get a bonus content and more content such as this. And then also check out the Discord. Please share all locations and all your friends and all that the podcast if you could and yeah as always thank you for your support um let's get to the interview and let's enter the labyrinth Thank you for joining me, Professor Kevin Vallier. But yeah, to kind of like start things off, I just want to kind of get a feel for, and the audience can get a feel for, you know, what are your kind of major areas of interest, kind of the research and writing that you kind of want to talk about and areas of expertise? 
So um, I'm primarily a political philosopher, but a lot of I have a lot of interests in normative ethics. You know, it's the theory of right and wrong. Um, I'm very interested in philosophy, politics and economics. So I'm interested mm-hmm. not just in, you know, how we ought to organize institutions, but how to think about social order and disorder, uh, how to analyze it uh, from different disciplinary perspectives. I have very strong mm-hmm. interest in the philosophy of religion. Um, traditional questions about God's existence, the relationship between God and morality, and increasingly um, the relationship um, between uh, or whether there is any religious basis for political order. But a lot of my early research is at the intersection of politics and religion and trying to figure out the uh, place of religion in uh, liberal democracy. So, you know, in terms of religious dialogue, religious exemptions, and those kinds of questions – uh, but my my interests have have gone in the direction of uh, what we might broadly just call reconciliation, the way in which people who are at odds kind of come together and make peace with each other. And a huge part of my interest in reconciliation, including a blog I've I've started a few months back, just called Reconciled, um, is how we get reconciled in politics, and in particular, how we move from position of opposition um, to be able to cooperate despite our deep disagreements. So that's led me to um, study trust, in particular, social trust or trust in most people and then trust in government or trust in our institutions. And I've been spending a lot of time in the book I've just finished that we'll be talking about, but also in in future work, trying to bring together the empirical literature and political science and economics with the philosophical literature on what trust is and when it's appropriate. Um, so that's a huge part of what I'm doing right now is trying to synthesize these different trust literatures in order to give a kind of comprehensive account of how we restore trust, why we, what the advantages of doing so are, what our duties are with respect to each other in terms of uh, pers- pursuing greater trust and reducing polarization. So that's kind of the broad trajectory of my, my research and my interests. Okay, yeah. And, and that's definitely a conversation I'm fascinated with, with this idea around trust. And I know some of your work deals with polarization and that kind of, I would say, almost like evolving, changing thing, essentially, that's in our politics. So I guess, you know, I I think I kind of know what your answer is, but is polarization bad? And like, why, I guess to give you kind of two questions to to chew on here, is polarization bad? And what maybe do you see as kind of the cause of this polarization? Because I definitely think it's kind of a more... It's definitely gotten worse, I think, mm-hmm. you know, in the past 50 years or so, where we, we see dramatically more polarization, dramatically more disagreement. And yeah, just kind of your yeah, thoughts so on that. <clears throat> there's a lot going on, um, both in the concept of polarization and its mm-hmm. its measurement, its causes and its consequences. So, I mean, it's hard to break down simply, but um, um, – <clears throat> There's when we talk about polarization, I think there's actually two phenomena that we're talking about. One is where we're changing our minds. That's what researchers call polarization. And the other is what they call sorting, where we already have our minds made up, but we come to be more associated with the like minded. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we can also polarize or sort based on issues or based on emotions. So I can come to disagree with others on the issues or I can just come to disagree because I don't like the other group. I am a Democrat. I disagree with Republicans or I'm a Democrat. I don't like Republicans. Right. Um, so, um, a professor at Princeton, Nolan McCarty has this nice new book, polarization, what everyone needs to know. And he calls all these phenomenon partisan divergence. 
So it's just us coming apart on partisan grounds. Um, and it's clear that there is partisan divergence at the elite level in the U.S., a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, with Republicans and Democrats, uh, with politicians, uh, with elite donors, um, and uh, um, among there's more polarization among the college educated than in, and high information voters. Um, so there's a lot of partisan divergence there. Uh, it's less clear whether there is much in the general population. Um, part of it is a little, uh, uh, a little unclear just because a lot of people don't know a lot about politics and so right. they don't have the base, but it looks like people polarize when they're higher information. So we, you know, maybe most of the public isn't divided, but it's because a lot of them aren't interested in politics or connected. So the politically interested in the U S and especially the politically influential seem to be diverging, um, along ideological lines. And it's even worse than this in some respects because, um, it looks like political polarization is driving polarization in other parts of society. So, for instance, in what people buy, um, oh, you know, yeah. in, or in religion, for that matter, it turns out that secularization in the U.S. is not a generalized phenomenon. It's concentrated uh, largely among white Democrats, mm-hmm. um, uh, whereas Republicans it's holding steadier, particularly white Democrat men. Um, who are mostly leaving liberal Protestantism, but uh, also evangelicalism to a lesser degree. Um, So it looks like what's happening is, and there's a good book on this, uh, From Politics to the Pews, that makes the case that if you become Republican, that that causes you to be more likely to go to church. And if you become a Democrat, it causes you to be less likely to go. So, So our partisan identities are driving our other identities. Um, and that's, I think, quite, it's actually quite, it's, it's, it's quite bad. Uh, I think any free society depends on us not being polarized on a single dimension because that's a, that's a recipe for tribalism and social and, you know, breakdown. Um, <clears throat> but if I say, look, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat, but we can worship together. Right. Or you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat and we're the same race or something like that. That helps. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the consequences of all of this divergence? Well, um, it's, di- it's, it's difficult because um, polarization in other societies doesn't function in the same way in part because political institutions are different. Ours are almost practically designed for gridlock. So what polarization means is you just have less policymaking um, and all the disadvantages that would come from less policymaking. Now, there are some advantages because some policies are bad. Um, but it's definitely made compromise a lot more difficult and our system doesn't work very well unless there's compromise. And do you think, do you think to kind of don't want to steer the conversation in a completely different direction, but kind of relate off that point, do you think a lot of the polarization is happening maybe because of like this kind of very strict two party system that we have? Do you think that's I kind think of, it makes it worse. although we do see some polarization in countries that are parliamentary in character? Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, yeah. So, um, um, like in, there seems to be some in Australia and the UK, a good bit in the UK, um, although not to the same, not, not to the same degree. Um, <clears throat> so I do think our voting electoral system make things worse. McCarty argues it's not huge. So for instance, like people think gerrymandering is a big cause, but it can at best explain polarization in the house. It can't even explain it in the Senate because the Senate's not gerrymandered, but there's the same amount of polarization in both houses. Um, <clears throat> There are some things that are pretty closely associated with it. Um, three things. Um, one is immigration. 
So it's possible as, as you know, there are more people in the U.S. from different backgrounds that there's less trust or polarization. Maybe whites concentrate in one group. Everybody else concentrates in the other. Economic inequality, um, although it's a bit more of a lagging indicator. So you might think that polarization, for instance, is making people uh, more hostile to redistribution because they're thinking, oh, look, why would I pay for these programs for these bad people? Right. Um, <clears throat> don't know that's a cause and effect. Um Immigration, there might, it might be both cause and effect. It does seem, I think, it has something of a cause. But economic inequality, I think, probably also causes polarization, but is caused by it. Um, and then there's my hypothesis, which I'm still trying to get together with empirical researchers to rigorously test, which is that falling trust and polarization are driving each other as well. So the thought is that, you know, when you are cued to think that people are very different from you. Right. Um, You'll trust them less. And if you trust them less, you're more likely to withdraw into your own groups. So uh, my my hypothesis is that falling trust and polarization are in a loop, in a causal feedback loop. Um, and I think there's lots of different ways that that could happen when you look at the empirical literature. For instance, it, you know, if political polarization leads to less redistribution and as many researchers think increases in economic inequality, reduce social trust – and polarization is causing lower trust. Um, so, but there's lots of connections there. So I think, I think polarization is making trust harder and lower trust is making polarization worse. Yeah. So I kind of want to stick to that point then kind of, cause yeah, I'm fascinated yeah. by that idea because I do definitely see it as an issue because not only is there a mistrust in our kind of government and political institutions, there's also just mistrust within people that say they agree with those yep. particular size of the political institutions. And I want to kind of relate this to, I think a growing interesting phenomenon that we have is like kind of this confirmation, I confirmation bias idea. And I want to kind of ask you is relating to your idea around this growing mistrust, which like I said, I do think is an issue. Do you think the two party system and kind of this idea that, because with the two-party system and the, and the reason – and like I said, I know it's happening in Europe, but like here in the US, why maybe it's happening a little bit more is this idea that it creates these just two sides. And it's really easy yeah. to divide between us versus yeah. them, which yeah. then maybe feedback loops back into the issue yeah. of confirmation bias where you almost have like this, this interest to mm -hmm. commit it because you're already – you only have really two options. So really you kind of just join one team or the other. So really yep. you just have this constant feedback loop of, well, I'm just, I don't want to join the other team. Mine's already right. So you kind of think that really influences that mistrust issue. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do, that is something that I've, I've, I've often, I've often thought. Um, and it does, it, it well, I mean, the question is how much the two-party system is a cause and an effect because mm -hmm. it could be both. Right. So, so suppose, for instance, we went to a proportional representation, a system where you know you vote for a party and then if the party gets 30 percent of the votes, they get 30 percent of the seats in Congress or something like that. Right. I think <clears throat> the Green Party would pick up some seats and the Libertarian Party would pick up some seats. I don't know how many. Right. Um, but I think we would we would also see, I think, a populist party of some kind, um, w people who are economically liberal but socially conservative, 
Um, so I, I think you would have some small parties. The question is, would they be big enough to depolarize? Um, and a lot of it would depend if they got large enough to go into coalition um, with other with the major parties. Um, so, you know, and then if people had a sense that these parties were more influential, they might be more likely to vote for them. So the question is, you know, are we in this two party equilibria? So where they're stuck so that even if we made third parties more viable, it would be hard for them to make any difference because then that would be self-reinforcing because voters would say, you know, oh, well, you're throwing your vote away or something. We should still try. Right. I think. I mean, I, I think we should still try, but um, but I think it it will uh, it will be difficult. So. Yeah. And, and I kind of just thought of this like at the top of my head asking that question because I didn't even like prepare <laughs> that type of question. But yeah. I do I, I would find it interesting. I think the Green Party would pick up some votes, but I would really find it fascinating on the libertarian side, just because I think yeah. it has a little bit of a I don't, I don't even want to say necessarily like a bigger core of those beliefs, but at least like yeah. a more <clears throat> solid base. Yeah. And yeah. the reason I would find this interesting and, and maybe it could help play a role in not only decreasing polarization, but also increasing trust again, in the sense that relating it to this mistrust, I think there's this issue where people have a hard time. They, they want to think they have like these, they're, they're going after these correct beliefs yep. and this two party system sets up this system where yep. they don't really care if they have reliable information and yep. relating this back to the libertarians is I see libertarians, for example, we have a two party system. So there's a lot of libertarians that tend to go towards the conservative side. That's right. right. That's right. That's and right. with with the libertarian belief system, and, and the reason I feel like I can kind of talk to this is because I was definitely intrigued, at least in college, by the libertarian belief system. Me but too. like I realized coming out that there is just so much to work with on the left. And there is like this left yep. libertarian wing, That's right. but not nearly, nearly as big <clears throat> as the right wing side. And the reason yeah. I bring that up is because it's like we they fall into the belief system almost of the conservative side. Like, yeah. for example, there's a lot of libertarians that are kind of iffy on immigration. And that's yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of like yeah, a big yeah. issue. And maybe that's because yeah. of the rise of Trump, whatever it is. My point is, is basically mm -hmm. they felt the need to inch yeah. towards that cons those conservative ideals because yeah. that's the team they felt like they had to join. And they didn't really find the left appealing. Yeah. If the left wasn't as, as inviting. And I was like, okay, so maybe that would help the polarization issue is that kind of like movement away from that two party system. Yeah. I mean, I have very strong opinions on this because I've been doing libertarian, you know, politics and, and intellectual stuff since I was 17. Mm -hmm. uh, so for 20 years now, um, polarization has hollowed out a large part of the liberty movement. And that's for a, a couple of different reasons. One, we, we can't form an, a, an instant, a stable institutional base of our own to be right. our own you know, to be our, to be our own group. Um, just, we just don't have the institutional space. I mean, people tried with the libertarian party, but because of the two party system, it was always going to be very difficult. Right. And because we didn't have that space, we were subject to tribalism. And one thing that Trump revealed is that libertarians actually had different priorities. Some cared about the, the principles, Right. Um, but others, it was about being contrarian. Um, and I think it was more about hating the left than loving liberty. And so when Trump rolled around 
And you had someone that was so good at making the left so angry and uh, taking out, you know, vengeance on them. A lot of libertarians just stopped being libertarian. And some of them went all right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the anti-immigration libertarians had already kind of paved the way or set that up. In fact, I even have a theory that it was the right-wing libertarians that helped make Trump possible because he was a pretty liberal Democrat until about 2000 when he ran for the Reform Party. And that's, I think, where some of his populist thinking got started and picked it up from Pat Buchanan, um, who he attacked there. And Buchanan had been close with the right-wing libertarians in the early 90s, even though they had had to split. A lot of the themes that Trump brings out and ways he proceeded were ways that Murray Rothbard was outlining uh, in terms of paleo-libertarian strategy right before he died in the early 90s. So um, I think that um, actually some of the radical libertarians were always looking for whatever allies they could. And after Rothbard's period working with the Libertarian Party and moving away from it, he said, we're going to make a, you know, we're going to make an alliance with the culturally conservative right. And then, you know, Hoppe and the others of his students just go, you know, pretty much go along with that. Um, And uh, that made it easier for people who are culturally conservative to move away from libertarianism because they cared about the cultural stuff more than they cared uh, about uh, about the principles. At the same time, you have the development of culturally left libertarianism, which was always kind of there in the in the early days. Um, but they become sort of more deeply committed uh, to the cultural left, and this happens particularly among libertarian libertarian kind of in influential intellectuals, where a lot of people started to move mm-hmm. started to. Uh, left. A lot of this happened as in in the in the course of the Iraq War. I think the libertarians spent a lot more time with people on the left, um, at least trying <laughs> trying to build bridges. I mean, when I was in college um, at WashU at St. Louis in the mid two thousands, we did all kinds of college libertarians did all kinds of stuff with the, the left on the Iraq War, um, and then, you know I think so. I think that had an uh, an effect, but of course on economics, I mean the the left was never never welcoming. So. Um, libertarians have felt kind of torn and you're right. There's been this pull. And so, but yeah. And I also think if we, if for instance, you know, you had 10, you had a party with Massey and, and Amash and Ron Paul and Rand Paul and, and, you know, you had seven, eight, nine congressmen, right. You know, you had actual functional parties in all 50 states that could actually get state legislators elected. Then I think libertarians have said, okay, we can like internalize our cultural disputes, but be focused on common, on common goals. Um, it, it's also another thing that really hollowed out the liberty movement um, with Trump uh, was that Trump uh, rejected the foreign policy interventionism. And libertarians rightly have cared a great deal about that. And right. so many libertarians just kind of thought, well, you know, this is way better than W. Um, and we hated that guy. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is the only game in town if we don't want another war. Um, and we'll see if any libertarians care for Sanders, if he gets the nomination. I mean, I haven't seen very much yet, but, um, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, I think we've been, we were tribalized. There's a bunch of reasons we were set up or prepared to tribalize i could go into even more detail but but yeah it's 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 been it's been terrible yeah it's and and i you kind of like gave me some thoughts for my own kind of like because like politically i don't really align myself with anything anymore i'm kind of just trying to remain curious and open and like listen to both sides right but i i will fully admit 
and I feel like my audience knows this, like in college, I definitely leaned libertarian. Yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. And then I started like associating more with like the left libertarian ideas that kind of aligned with a little bit with like the left center. Yeah. But like the fascination I had, because I was in, I was in college in a very interesting stage around like the 2016 elections. I was like kind of just getting done basically. And I saw this, turn that I kind of want to segue the conversation into because I kind of think it relates to what you just said, Um, where early in college, my freshman year, which was like 2013, yeah, I saw the left was like the very combative side. And I think they would agree. They're combative about their ideas. They thought this is the way we're going to get our ideas across. We're going to, you know, advance past Obama. We're not really happy with Obama. We want new, fresh ideas. I'm oversimplifying, but that type of idea. But then towards the end, I started seeing the right become very, very combative. And then I saw the the libertarian, and I I kind of, I do believe in this, like this libertarian to alt-right pipeline that we're kind of witnessing. And I saw this turn towards the right being the combative side. And just instead of being the the party that's trying to appeal to the left, all of a sudden I saw them starting to attack the left. And yeah. I kind of want your thoughts is, was it something that was brewing and then Trump, Trump kind of brought it up and like allowed it? Or was it something caused by Trump in a sense? Um, I think it's, it's some of both. I think there's been a natural tendency of anti-elitism on the uh, anti-elitism at the cultural level on the right for a long time. Yeah. Um, and that Republican elites were able to tamp down on it successfully for a long time. Um, but, uh, eventually for a variety of interesting reasons, uh, Republican elites became less powerful. A lot of it, I mean, this it's actually a really fascinating story, but Republican party is actually quite weak in the sense that it can't resist, uh, external influences very well. Mm. Um, it's why they couldn't even stop Trump. I mean, historically parties, democratic parties just chose their candidate in the back room, you know, among with the party leaders. And then they, the people chose between the, you know, we didn't have the primary process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they, or it wasn't as powerful. Um, so, um, there was groundwork laid where the sense was, there's always been this kind of populist element on the, well, and the, and the right since then, the second world war, I mean, suspicion and, and paranoia and conspiracy theories. I mean, there's plenty on the left too, I think, but in terms of conspiracy theorizing and paranoia mm-hmm. and things like that. But, um, so yeah, Trump, brought sort of set a fire this kind of latent gas that was always there um and uh, so so no i think it i think that he's been able to bring out that i mean part of it actually was way that republican elites and the base just disagree sharply about immigration so the republican elites wanted to pave the way for more immigration and so you know a lot of this came out of the revolt against w in his second term about trying to normalize immigration and then, you know, what had happened was people thought, oh, well, Romney lost because they didn't draw in any Hispanics um, or enough Hispanics. And so the Republican elites were like, OK, like we need to, like, normalize immigration. And the 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 base said, no, 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 no. Um, and then it became cle- it, Trump accidentally stumbled on the discovery that there are a huge number of people that voted for Obama that if he polarized them on that dimension would vote for him. Um, we didn't know they existed. We didn't know that the you know, a million or more people who voted for Obama would vote for Trump. That seems insane. Um, but but there were such people. Many people in Ohio, for instance. I mean, Obama won Ohio 
uh, fairly well. Mm -hmm. And then Trump won it decisively. And, you know, Ohio, it was it was a shock. I mean, but but Ohio is very it's like culturally conservative and economically liberal. Um, and so Trump was able to reorient things. So, you know, Romney had that New York Times editorial, let Detroit go bankrupt. Um, and this was kind of, you know, but, <clears throat> you know, Trump, you know, does the whole like, well, we got to care for our people kind of like he he it's a very different it's a very different kind of style. So and I mean, one of the re- the reason I'm interested in all of these all of these trends is because, the you know, we'll talk about the. The book I've just finished uh, that that came out last year, my it's called "Must Politics Be War," where I'm looking at all these different phenomena and trying to ask whether we're just kind of screwed because of the nature of having a large, diverse social order. So all the patterns that we're talking about are patterns of conflict, where it looks like politics is not about compromise; it's just about conquest. Mm-hmm. You know, so 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 That's a good point. You know, fundamentally. You would like a democratic society to be one where people say, look, we really disagree, but but we can come together on certain key issues and, and, and figure out some kind of solution um, that will at least work for a while. Um, but um, falling trust, I think, has put us in a position where we see uh, um, the other side as untrustworthy. And so you just have to guard against them and you even have to act preemptively uh, to stop them. Um, even if it means breaking ordinary norms. So I guess, yeah. So a question I thought of related to that, kind of related to that. Because something I have to find interesting and to kind of stick with this immigration point, because I find the immigration issue one, yeah. because I agree, because <laughs> like the right was open to immigration, at least the center right. Yeah. And it was very interesting to see for me that phenomenon kind of changed because that was to me like an issue where both sides could come to an agreement on. Like you said, I saw a lot more discourse. There was plenty of issues in the past 20 years where we were going politically, no doubt. But the polarization has been something that has happened not only in Trump's term, but it really started happening in Obama's term. The immigration issue is one where I see Trump and, and I see because Trump, he, he is a populist. He's kind of just yeah. trying to appeal to whatever base he could find to become president, basically. Yeah. The immigration one is fascinating because it brought this whole new group of people to power around immigration that also I, I see. And, and, and the reason I find it interesting is I see it even amongst this population of young people that are yeah. kind of the the talkers of talking about these issues and this national, very national wing of the conservative party and the Republican party. And I want to kind of ask you, do you, what role does that have in this kind of polarization? And and the reason I say it might have a role is because they like to use that as, Oh, the left doesn't like our country. They hate our country. And that's why we can't trust them. So that kind of idea, do you think it played more of a, is like maybe like a, a central role in this divide and polarization? Yeah, I think people on the right um, that are conservative uh, tend to have uh, much stronger moral intuitions with respect to loyalty mm-hmm. and uh, authority. It's one reason I think the Republican Party, it's easier for them to generate internal cooperation uh, uh, in Congress even. I mean, I think they're just better and more tribal, better at being tribal. Um, 
And as such, there's two kinds of things. One is you, you're sniffing out traitors and cheaters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the sense of, of disloyalty being, being a vice. Um, and so I do think there was this sense that the leadership in the Republican Party, particularly the foreign policy hawks, were able to stoke successfully in the base to get them to look at Democrats as disloyal and hard to trust because, you know, did you forget 9-11, right? I mean, don't mm-hmm. do you remember yeah. you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, immigration is similar because the thought is that <clears throat> if Trump could cue, okay, look, you know, we have this like traditional, you know, population and, you know, that speaks English and, you know, it's kind of white, mostly white or whatever. Um, and now the Hispanics are coming in and changing all that. Um, it's a, that's a kind of group loyalty too. It's it's a sense, right. it's like an invasion of the tribe or kind of pollutant of some sort. Um, the irony in this is not quite true. I mean, uh, uh, if, for instance, uh, conservatives had been polarized p- primarily on the religious dimension, because Hispanics, you know, immigration immigrants are so much more religious, yeah, um, it could have gone very differently. You could have just said, you know, this is one of Rob George's points. He's a Catholic uh, political philosopher, political theorist. Um, he said, "Look, we want all these Catholics in the United States." <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think. You know, you've got a Republican Party that's very, very tribalized, and you can control their reactions to things by tribalizing, by making certain kinds of tribal differences salient. So the W people were good at that in foreign policy. The Trump people are good at that in immigration. Um, but it's also the case, I think, some of this re- opposition is sort of nascent in a way um, to almost any population. So here's the reason. The U.S. is undergoing faster demographic change than almost any other country ever in, in lieu of a, a war where there's massive death. Mm-hmm. Um, so the U.S. is becoming more diverse very, very quickly. And the status of women and minorities is also increasing very, very quickly. So you have a massive change in status and a massive eth- uh, ethnic and linguistic changes. <clears throat> I would think just about any po- population <clears throat> would would get the majority population would get nervous. Yeah. Um, and so it might just be a, just a native reaction. Um, so people say, oh, it's racism or whatever. Well, some of it is, but it, it that's too, in a way, specific. I think it's just the sense that like, we were, I don't know, you're too young to, in Simpsons episodes, uh, interested in the Simpsons, but ba- basically <laughs> there's this old gran- no. <laughs> grandpa system thing where he says, you know, well, I was once in and I knew what would it, you know, what was in, right. what was it? And then it passed me by. But in any, any event, um, uh, they felt like they were in and now they're not, they're, they're not, now they're out. Right. I yeah. mean, it, the, the, that's it's it's very, very simpler, simple. Like this was ours. It's gone. I, yeah. And I think it's like an extension of people. And, and maybe this is more of like an abstract discussion that we don't really need to fully get into. But it's like this idea that people in general, if if humans have anything in their nature innate about them, I think one of them maybe is this fear of change. Yeah. And that yeah. fear of change creates all these justifications, whether it it does have racist uh, reasonings, which is bad, but they use, they find these, they look and look and look and find these justifications for their fear of change to justify their fear of change. So then they can then say, well, we don't want that. Even though, you know, maybe they shouldn't have those opinions necessarily. Cause yeah. Yeah. And, and and that's like one of the, the issues that I've been fast. Cause I guess, 
I said before that I don't have really strong political, I don't have strong political alliances in the party system, but like I do have political opinions and, and immigration is one, trade is one, and being like yeah. against the drug war, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And immigration, I find is always really being a positive thing. And yep. also trade being a positive Agreed. thing. And that's why I've been yep. fascinated Agreed. by this administration is because all of a sudden these two issues that I thought everyone was kind of, or at least, you know, like the center and the right center, and left center, everyone was kind of agreeing on like, hey, free trade, good. Don't touch that. Yeah. And immigration, yeah. good. Don't touch that. And all of a sudden yeah. I just saw this swarm of, yeah. of changing of opinions because I saw it even in the elites in the media. They just changed their opinion on immigration and trade all of a sudden. I'm just, I was just fascinated by that. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a pretty interesting thing. That's another result of tribal tribal behavior where agreed. they care more about the in group than the issue. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And if the high status members of the group change, and then they send signals to the rest that here are the in things. Yeah. You know, it just it's just a trendsetter phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, it, oh. Trump became an issue trendsetter, and it's weird because you don't. You think of the people that set trends as like, you know, not so rough around the edges, to put it lightly. Right. About it. Yeah. No, um, I, I agree. Because, yeah, um, yeah, you always see as and, – and I've like discussed this in some of my solo episodes yeah. where I, f- I find it really interesting with – I would say let's like talk about the leaders a little bit in, yeah. in the political side of things in the media and both yeah. both young people and as, as ones that have been established. I've seen them change their opinions. and I like witnessed it because I was someone that was definitely I don't do it as much anymore. Listen to politics just because I kind of gotten sick of it. But I do yeah. like still discussing it with certain people such as yourself that I could tell are very they're kind of just open to conversation. Yeah. But some of the people I Thanks. used to listen to. I've witnessed them change their opinions drastically and just like not touch that. And what I find fascinating is, is this shift of, it's almost like people look to them that for information, such as like, let's say like a Rush Limbaugh, a Sean Hannity, they look to them for their opinions because they expect them to be, you know, they've, they've read up on this. They're, they're in the know of the policy world. They, they just know all the issues and they're the experts. Right. But then, People look to them, right? Yeah. But then I realize is those people that they start gathering that audience and it's like they create this echo chamber around themselves Yeah. because all of a sudden they have a reason to not only shift their opinion towards where their yep. audience is going and they don't even realize that they're shifting kind of with their audience where they're getting other information and all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're not a good source of information because <laughs> they're full of this well, bias and full of <clears throat> this reason to, to not change their yeah. opinion. You know, one thing that's interesting, if you're 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 right about that, that causal story, which I think you very well might be, it it does introduce an element of randomness into what people's opinions are. Right. Yeah. Because oh, that's a good if, point. if there's if there's a causal feedback, I mean, it, it could it's possible it could go in lots of different directions. If people are just influencing each other's opinions and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, the things that become that they care about can just go off in really loopy or unexpected ways. So, um, I, you yeah, know, I think that it also helps to explain like the things that people seize on and the things that people make taboo. Um, mm. And we know, you know, if you look at other cultures or older cultures, the things that are taboo look completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll say this, and I don't know, maybe this will bother some of your listeners, maybe not. Um, but that, you know, I think there's a great deal of this on the left with respect oh, to just yeah. establishing new taboos. And then when they're violated, just going completely nuts. 
So, you know, for instance, the whole dead naming thing. I mean, five years ago, nobody knew what that was. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but now it's like seen as this like heinous moral offense, um, to refer to someone who's transitioned by their previous name. Um, whereas, you know, you might think, oh, people just don't know the norms, but then you follow them and people think, oh no, look, you must, you know, be so bad. Um, so, you know, and on the right, I mean, there are things that were taboo under Bush. I think it's less bad now with Trump. Um, because so many Republicans, you kind of know, oppose him. But under W, you know, saying, criticizing U.S. foreign policy as being, as causing backlash or blowback. I mean, that was taboo, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. where Ron Paul was so shocking, right, in 2008, because he would just, like, he had this famous exchange with Giuliani. And he just said, no, you know, look, I mean, our foreign policy, there was blowback. I'm not blaming the U.S., but I am saying that our actions have consequences. Um and uh, that so there, you know, you do get with echo chambers, you get these interesting taboos and then they they get reinforced. And so violations of them are just and I think Twitter's made this especially bad because Twitter is all about the enforcement of taboos. If you think about it, that's true. Um, um, and it's just a super taboo generating system and it's sped up. The, the degree of opinion change and solidification and polarization, it's really a cesspool. I mean, I'm on it, but I have to exercise <laughs> a lot of restraint not to, to make things worse. I've, uh, uh, I've moved away from it the last like six months or so even. I was really yeah. a Twitter user. Now I kind of just use it for those that still follow me on there and stay up yeah. to date. Yeah, it's well, – I try to get a little bit more into it just to promote my books. Um, and, you know, I try to keep it to conversations with people that are – Mm -hmm. that are interesting. But I've seen academics that I know, they're like dunking on Trump and tagging him and stuff. And like, just completely pointless. Right. Uh, sometimes it's just to get more followers. Um, so, I, and I mean, I disagreed. I tagged Bernie Sanders one time with a, an article I had that disagreed. So I'm not completely immune to this, although I thought it was a fine, kindly made point. Um, Which, yeah, yeah, and that's okay to do, I think, too. Yeah, is, yeah no, I, yeah. So, you know, you got to... Uh, it's important to pay attention to the arbitrariness of a lot of our views and where they come from mm -hmm. and the fact that they seem to be generated by factors other than the reasons that there are to hold these positions. Right. Uh, and I think that can bring a, a great deal of kind of epistemic humility where you think, well, you know, I'm affect I'm afflicted by these biases as well. And so how do I adjust or respond? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, one thing I've been working on thinking a lot about um, is um, uh, disagreement about sex mores, sexual mores, um, about what's permissible and what's impermissible and how quickly our standards of what what acts are permissible, what sex acts are permissible and what are impermissible has been changing. I mean, the left, for instance, has greatly lowered and decreased certain sexual taboos, but greatly increased others in a very short period of time. Um, uh, I think, you know, even in the process now of, of, say, putting you under suspicion if, for instance, you have worries about attractions, whether you're attracted to trans people or not, for instance, um, that may be another thing that starts to become a taboo, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, so, but, you know, so the, the let, yeah, the, so certain taboos have been lowered, others have been raised, um, and uh, I, I see the right is on these issues kind of at a time delay. Um, so they just adopt the views that the left had 20 years, 25 years ago. Um, yeah, there are a few exceptions. There's a few exceptions. Um, 
One, uh, the right, uh, particularly the, the a, lo- uh, a lot of people of faith have, have stood on opposition to abortion, which I think is quite deep and sincere. Um, so the pro-life movement has, has, has been fighting for about half a century um, with about the same amount of support, huge marches that media didn't pay attention to. And there's also the ex- uh, but on uh, on homosexuality, you know, it's just a it's just been a lag of the of the left. Um, divorce was the same way. Contraception use, uh, same. Oh, well, contraception use is a little more complicated because conservative Protestants have been fine with it for a long time. Yeah. Point is, there's a lot of arbitrariness in our polarization because a lot of it's based on group reaffirmation, and so we end up in weird places where people are going absolutely nuts over things that aren't really in proportion, don't seem to be in proportion to what's philosophically of cons- what what moral philosophy and it would lead us to think was of concern. So, you know, for instance, like uh, animal suffering, mm-hmm. it's just hard. It's just horrendous. You know, right. and there's like very almost no, no argument of anybody. And it doesn't matter if they're a religious philosopher or not, that factory farming is just like one of the most insanely terrible things ever. Right. Uh, we, we have a lot of people talking about climate change, but, you know, their behavior is totally inconsistent with their excoriation Agreed. or, um, you know, they are not willing to consider nuclear power. You know, there's just things that they don't take seriously that if they really cared, you would think that they would. So, you know, for me, I mean, the big issues. Well, OK, oh, this is idiosyncratic. So maybe your your uh, your listeners will find this interesting. But I think like objectively speaking, like the great evils of today are climate change, immigration restrictions, mass incarceration, and abortion. Hmm. I feel like um, I can agree on quite a bit that's there. A pretty, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. So, I, I mean, I worry just, for me, like the big things are just mass death, oh, and factory farming. So mass death and mass suffering. Mm-hmm. Just so, so it's just like, let's just like stop mass death and mass pain. And, you know, these, that's not, like an unreasonable uh, priority, but our, right. our level of emotional investment is not tuned to these things at all. I hope once the left wins its most of its victories on sexual morality that they'll turn to animal ethics full time, um, and then we'll get some real progress on on something that isn't. I mean, not that the sexual morality issues aren't important; they're very important, especially for people's identities. But it, it, the level of investment does seem to me somewhat arbitrary relative to problems that could you know, be very destructive. And it would be good to see, for instance, <clears throat> a lot more sanity with respect to adaptation when it comes to climate change, for instance. And people just saying, look, we can't just like hate on Republicans until they support our carbon mitigation policies. Like, what are we going to do when we don't do enough? You know, like we need to be talking about it. That's one reason I've liked Andrew Red Yang, because he says, look, with a universal basic income, people can move inland. And, yeah. you know, that's horrifying in one way. But like you want you want those options on the table. So, exactly. you know, I, I, so the left is way better on the climate change issue than than the right. I think that um, they're just burying their hands at the set he, heads in the sand on this in a way that seems to me just out of spite and hatred of the left. It's the same thing with respect to meat eating. You know, people on the right just kind of like, yeah, screw those, you know, effeminate vegans. We're going to eat meat or whatever. Uh, and having become uh, – I sound – I've just become a preachy vegetarian. I always told myself I wouldn't be uh, when I became one a few years back. But uh, uh, yeah, so a lot – a huge amount of our norms and our taboos are based on tribe 
and the internal echo chamber you find, but also the hatred between the groups and, you know, yeah. trying to keep a clear heads really, 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 really difficult. But for me, I just try to say, okay, what are the way I try to do is see like, what are the really hor- most horrible things for humans and, and non-humans? What are just like death, torture, suffering? What are like the big, terrible things? And then what are like the pretty straightforward ways that those things could be addressed? And I find that can sort of help me at least to some degree stand apart from some of this stuff. I'm under no illusions and I'm not myself biased, but, um, right. Yeah. But, but it like helps shield you from some of that bias when you yeah. look Just at focus it that on the way. Big horrors, right. Focus on the big horrors, focus on the easy fixes to the big horrors. And you're going to get some stuff right, I think. Yeah. And, and that's so like, I kind of want to, so say a couple thoughts and then maybe we can, yeah, I kind of yeah. want to shift towards the, the trust in the institution yeah. section, but like yeah. moving that towards the morality section, but like some thoughts on what kind of what you said is kind of going back to the echo chambers where I agree the left yeah. does the same thing in the media where I think the media and maybe just our digital age in general yeah, with the internet and all that where what, the issues that we become fascinated with, with, because I think a lot of people would agree with you, like, okay, let's find yeah. the big issues that we can de- decrease suffering on, right? Yeah. And a lot of people would agree with those. But yet, yeah. when you listen to the talk show hosts, when you listen to the main channels, and, yeah. and actually even, even the not main channels, such as YouTube, for example, what are they talking about? They're talking yeah. about... You know, the right is is talking about meat eating out of, I think, a lot of times, yeah, spite. Yeah. And yeah. they're talking about immigration in, the, in, the, in a yeah. certain way to kind of piss off the left, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I'm not saying the left doesn't do this stuff either. I think the right yeah, is the, definitely the, the right more, has become the culturally transgressive right. uh, group, whereas, yeah. you know, 20, 30 years ago, the left was culturally transgressive. Yeah, and, and then I will – I agree with you that the left is basically obsessed with the issues around sex, for example, where yeah. I think they, they're they really good on animal rights, for example. Why aren't they talking about yeah. that more? Or, yes. And, and it's, not that we, it's not that we shouldn't be talking about that. Right, LGBT right. It's that's a good like, point. It's just like – we need to. I mean, I my view is that you know the, the 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 left needs to be talking way more about animals than we are right now relative to other things. Yeah, it's like it's I like they have these they have these two issues of animals, for example, and climate change. Yeah. And like I said, you're right; they get to obviously still talk about those issues, but yeah. kind of bringing it back to the digital age point, yeah. it's like all of a sudden they want these issues that gets clicks because you know who's going to yeah. click on the yeah. the discussion around sex, the angry yeah. conservatives and yeah. the angry leftists. So they can just yeah. go to war and battle yeah. and everyone gets clicks. Everyone gets fame. Um, yeah. They can be, they become they, these grifters and all that. And it's all over YouTube. It's all over the mainstream media is picking up on it. And it's like yeah. crisis. Cable is probably the worst actually uh, in this regard. I actually find there are places on the internet that are better than cable news. And then there are places that are worse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, but I'm a, I, but I, I agree. I mean, one of the points I make in the, in the, the new, my new book, must politics be war is that, um, we're, you know, it, we've, we've, all, we've been tribal since the beginning of the human race. Right. Mm-hmm. And overcoming tribalism has been a very precious achievement. And we mm-hmm. still don't tar- really know how we did it. Right. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot we're learning about. How did you get tribes to cooperate? 
how did you ever get it to where members of tribes could trust each other um, um, when there was always the risk of, of, of death and attack? Um, how did we even get so like the, how to explain the rise of agriculture, right? Or hunter gatherers. It's a, you know, 100, 150 people. Maybe um, you get to agriculture, huge numbers of people. Um, we just don't know. We don't know. And particularly, how did we get from the smaller agricultural civilizations to the larger commercial organizations as well? Um, so, I mean, our tribal impulse is kind of always going to be with us, I guess, in lieu of some massive genetic engineering or something. Um, and the U.S., I see, is is kind of going backwards um, in terms of and just re- a return to form, right? A, re- a return a return to the to to the tribal, and one of the reasons that I focus so much on bringing together different disciplines or figuring out well what is trust, how is it created, bringing together these dis- dis- disciplinary perspectives is precisely to figure out how we brought about this precious achievement of being able to trust people we don't know, mm-hmm. and to trust institutions that we don't know. It you know like sorry, another Simpsons reference. There's a Simpsons episode where Krusty the Clown has a cereal and there's like there's a uh, um, uh, a saw blade Krustio that's a that's a toy in one mm-hmm. of the cereal boxes. And, um, you know, if some kid eats, it, it's going to tear up his, his stomach. Right. So but the point is, like, I never worry about there being a metallic saw blade Krustio in my cereal. Right. I don't like worry about like getting weapon like a weapon being in there or or a disease or a virus. But I have no idea who's responsible for this. Like, I don't know anybody who's involved in the cereal supply chain, but I eat cereal every day and I'm not worried about eating something that kills me. Like, how did we get to a place where the millions of people are cooperating that have no idea who each other are and they trust each other? And a lot of libertarians will say, oh, well, it's markets. Well, it's true. But what are the preconditions for markets? How did we ever get markets with strangers? We couldn't do it without trust. Now, I think markets help to create trust, but they also depend on trust. Yeah. And this is actually my my big thing, like as as a kind of classical liberal philosopher, like my mm-hmm. big like drum that I beat um, is that libertarians need to think more about trust because you can't have markets and limited government without trust. But we don't really know how to think about what creates it. So like one of the ways I challenge libertarians is to say, look, like free market pop- policies are often unpopular. Um, and sometimes you can get politicians to go for it that you couldn't get the folk to go for. But if you so distrust in politicians, they can't make things more free market. So most countries around the world in the last 30 years have become more free market, not less, except for us. Right. Uh, and, you know, if you try to more, move more free market, the thought is, oh, well, why are they really pushing for these policies? It's because they serve the rich. Whereas in Sweden, someone on the Swedish right could say, hey, you know, these nationalizations, they're just not working very well. Like, here's the evidence. And the Swedish public will be like, I'll think about that. Maybe you're wrong, but maybe you're right. You know, whereas Mm -hmm. the American public, they don't say, like, I need to take very seriously what this politician is arguing when it's on someone on the other side, you know, or someone in the center. So we need to be thinking more about trust in terms of maintaining free societies and in terms of fighting back against tribalism. We just don't know enough about what brings it about and how to keep it. Um, so, yeah. And so I guess, I guess my question for you then is how do we reinsert that trust? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. So there's a, there's, 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 it's a, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of, of, of things to say. Um, so, 
we want to attack the problem from two angles. One um, is that we, we want to try to bring about trust just directly in terms of increasing trust versus actually convincing each other rationally that we can trust each other. So there's actually two problems. There's just like more visceral, you know, hindbrain, primal kind of problem. How do we even get people to stop being so emotionally polarized and hostile? And then there's this more like intellectual problem where you have lots of smart people who are saying they can't be trusted because of this, that, or the other thing. Mm-hmm. So there's like a, there's a rational problem of rational, what we call a problem of rational trust and the problem of real trust. Um, and the two books, the book that just came out, the first one addresses this first problem of how do we convince people to be to be of different perspectives to be able to trust each other. And the argument in Must Politics Be War essentially is that the institutions of an open and free society are uniquely placed to help people with different perspectives to trust each other because each group can kind of live their own lives in their own way and they can see that others are treating them the same. Whereas in authoritarian or sectarian regimes, some people are saying, look, I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to force my view on you. And this creates distrust because the, the, the group in charge can't trust the oppressed group because the oppressed group is going to just like disobey when they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And the oppressed group isn't going to trust the hegemon because they're being having alien values imposed on them. So in a kind of in a classical liberal society, um, we can we can deal with our differences in a ways that allow us to trust each other because the respect for our each other's rights is a way of conveying that that we have some regard for other people and that we can be trusted with each other's to protect each other's freedom and well-being. So that's the first kind of big argument that a liberal society is one where it actually makes rational sense for us to trust each other. Mm-hmm. But now there's this, uh, this empirical question. It's like, well, what like gets right at people's hearts in terms of social and political trust? What are like the direct visceral causes of trust and distrust? There's a lot of data on this, thousands of studies, and I've been trying to survey them for years. And I have in the next book that's coming out this fall, A Liberal Democratic Peace, Creating Trust in Polarized Times. They're, they're both with Oxford. Um, they're a pair. So in that book, I go through all of this trust data and you, it, it's complicated because there's lots of different factors. So first is to, to distinguish between social trust, which is trust in most people or trust in strangers in your society or something. And then there's like institutionalized trust, like trust in the, in the government. And there's different causal stories about those different things. Social trust matters a lot. It matters because one, it makes transactions easier because, um, and, and, uh, you can trade more often with people that you trust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're also more likely to get more economic inequality because people are, are more likely to voluntarily go along with social programs when they think the recipients can be trusted. You see less corruption, uh, you know, a better behavior among legal and authorities and, and civil servants and things like that. Um, so you want to get social trust. Well, how do you get it? Well, the problem with that is we don't know a huge amount uh, about how to produce it. We know that things like communism and authoritarianism can destroy it. Um, people viewing and seeing corruption in the legal system, judici- in the judicial system, the, in, in, in the bureaucracy in lots of ways can reduce trust, uh, social trust. Um, and one of my hypotheses also is um, that um, even our kind of moral convictions, we don't have enough shared moral norms where everyone can say, okay, like 
if you follow those norms, you're a good guy, even if you're in the red tribe. Like and 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 so we don't have enough co- a common even moral framework to convince each other to trust each other because so there's the causes of social trust are oftentimes mysterious. I mean, for instance, like it looks like country if you if you um, control for different factors, it looks like countries with monarchies um, are more trusting than those without monarchies. Mm. And the reason is probably because it's really good to have nonpartisan high status people. Interesting. Um, um, so everyone could say, yeah, 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 the royal family. We like them. I mean, we don't like the prime minister, but we like them. Whereas in the U.S., there's not there's not that. All the elites are polarized. Um, whereas at least the royal family tends to stay apart in England, tends to stay apart from from the political issues. Um, uh, so like what role? So- does that so, so sorry, sorry. So just one, let me, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. This no is worries. my way of saying like there social trust. We don't know a huge amount what causes it, but it has all these good effects and we need to figure out how to get more of it. But there's a different story for trust in institutions. Okay. Yeah. In that case, there's lots of different things we can do. So for instance, one of the things that we have to be able to do is um, to increase economic growth that affects and benefits everybody. This is just a huge factor. Also, making sure that government is isn't corrupt and follows kind of regular, predictable routine rules where it treats different groups the same. So those are the big factors: economic performance for most people, and then just ordinary quality of governance measures. Those are huge. Well, how do we get more of these things? Well, there's a number of different things I talk about, um, but one thing I think your listeners are finding especially interesting is land reform. So one of the big sources of economic inequality but reduced growth is extreme real estate restrictions where rich people zone things to make their homes and things worth more money, and then they exclude the poor and the middle class. So what this is doing, the overall emergent effect of this in San Francisco, uh, in L.A., in New York City, is to make the economies much less efficient because you don't get as much division of labor because the workers can't commute and get in. So if so, they're reducing economic growth, but they're also increasing economic inequality because effectively they redistributing towards the rich from the poor with the zoning regulations of saying you can't live here because we think your houses are ugly. And land reform is going to do this. It's going to increase economic growth. It's going to increase economic equality. Um, and uh, and at the same time. And that's going to please the right and the left simultaneously. They're going to say, okay, things are getting better. The government's more functional because there's more equality. There's more growth. There's more prosperity. And that would then likely create more trust, like in general, culturally and in the government. So there are small things, you know, and this would be cumulative. So you need a whole list of policies, but trying to identify things that are, you know, so for instance, you know, one of my things is I think real estate zoning, and this is, you know, weird for a libertarian kind of person to say, but I think it should not be handled at the local level. It should be handled at, at the state level. So it's harder for the local rich to to do the not in my backyard stuff at the, you know, if the state of California zoned things, I think it wouldn't be great, but it would be better than, you know, the San Francisco elite being able to, you know, make it impossible to be poor in San Francisco. Right. Um, so, so land reform is something that I think uh, would do a lot of good. I do think that um, uh, police reforms are going to be important. Uh, getting getting to the place, particularly where minorities can trust the police, is going to be really, really a big deal. 
um, in terms of people being able to trust each other. So there's lots of there's lots of things uh, that can be done. There's lots more we don't know that we have to figure out. So yeah. Anyway, and I agree. And yeah, and I guess another issue I think would be really important is just decreasing criminalization of things across the board. Not only the drug war, which is an issue I'm interested in, but also just criminalization in general. We like to create punishments for things, whether it's, I mean, whether it's even like licensing, for example, something, an issue that, you know, it's not like a really, really like enticing issue that people are going to get passionate about, but it's just like one of those little things that you're punishing uh, poor people. And yeah, yeah. I mean, people see the system is rigged, their trust goes down. I mean, that's exactly. a huge thing that we know is that when you see cheating going unpunished in an institution, mm-hmm. that's bad for trust exactly. in that institution. Yeah. And the things that we can do to reduce the appearance of cheating in lots of different respects are almost always going to be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, no, I think that's one of the things is corruption that hits both social and political trust at the same time. Um, in fact, we're actually working on a paper now on the relationship between trust in the legal system and trust in the in society. So it looks like that most people in most countries take the police and judges to be like exemplary community members such that if there's, if they're corrupt, then people think like, well, if they're corrupt, like most people are corrupt. Mm-hmm. So if you can increase and do reduce corruption in the legal system, and people think the legal officials are like exemplary community members and people say, OK, like the police seem like they're getting better or like the judges seem like they're getting better. You know, maybe everybody's getting better. Um, um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff that's going on with the police is that we're able to pay a lot more attention to what what they're doing. But you need practical reforms. I don't necessarily know what's effective. I was excited about the camcorder record, uh, video recording for a while, but I'm not sure how much of an effect uh, that has on net. But um but uh, hopefully some. So, yeah, I mean, anything that we can do uh, to p- penalize corrupt behavior. You know, this yeah. is one of the reasons I think that there has to be some kind of consequence for Trump for the Ukraine stuff. I mean, Watergate was terrible for trust in government. Um, and things have been pretty uh, ha- have fallen off pretty steeply. But I think Trump's making things worse in lots of ways um, in terms of violating ordinary norms that we just trusted presidents wouldn't do like presidents do all kinds of horrible stuff, but like there was some stuff that you could like trust them not to do, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah. Like in the U S I mean, people don't like try to, you know, get dirt on their political opponents by withholding money from a foreign government. Like they, I mean, at least they don't do that. They get in terrible war, all do kinds of terrible stuff, but at least they don't do that. Whereas with Trump, it's just like, well, he's just going to do whatever he wants. Yeah. Um, it's a shame to remove someone who hasn't gotten into a, a horrible unconstitutional war. Um, I would prefer the first removal in U.S. history to be for someone who is responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, there has to be consequences in the system. And I think that w- this is one of the things Elizabeth Warren is the very best on, though I do think some of her policies would make corruption worse, um, particularly her wealth taxes. Um, um, because it would increase the dishonesty in terms of, I mean, it's, 
it's complicated, but what counts as wealth is sufficiently fluid that you're just going to create an incentive for people to reframe and recalculate and hide and lie. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's been very good on penalizing, you know, a lot of bad actors in, in the system, um, you know, particularly people that prey on the poor in terms of bankruptcy uh, law and things like that that she's been working on for a very long time. Now, I mean, I think so many of her policies are just are just awful. Um, but, um, you know, that would be something that she would be good at. Um, uh, in, in certain regards, uh, if not in others. So yeah, we, we, we have to do more to expose and then rein in corruption at the different, at different levels of government. And sometimes that involves a limiting government. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's a issue I'm fascinated with too, is because for example, I think people, they have this hyper focus on the national level, or that's yep. you know that's the cool yep. thing to talk about. That's the cool thing to be aware yep. of, and and the yep. hot button issues, and you can show off to 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 your friends and be like, oh look yep. at, look what I know about the federal yep. level and the national level. But then yep. I, I want to like remind people when we're talking about corruption and trust, I think a yep. big issue is your the state level plays way more of an effect on your everyday life. And then yep. secondly. When we're talking about, like, for example, trust in police, trust in the justice system, yeah. very big issues that I think lead <clears throat> yep. to other things falling in place. Yeah. The The idea is, okay, first of all, we need to start focusing, people need to start focusing, whether it, just because it's not the, the cool thing to do, but you need to because it affects people's lives more directly, is once you start focusing on the state level, what's going on there, what are the ordinances, the laws being yep. put into effect – because then that's where the the police and distrust comes into play is because yep. all of a sudden the police can get you for so many things and there's tribal yep. effects taking place within the police force and they can get you for yep. so many things. So then what happens is all <clears throat> of a sudden people, up, they defend themselves. Yeah, exactly. Become, yeah. All of a sudden right. they're getting criminalized for all these little things that just start adding up, whether yep. it's fines and fees and, yep. and random tickets that all of a sudden it's just nickel and diming the poor when they don't have any nickels or dimes. Exactly. I mean, that, I mean so how the, much are you? Yeah. So. Yeah. So then you end up, yeah. you know, you, let's say, let's say it starts with a ticket, unpaid parking yeah. ticket. It leads to them getting you for something else. Then all of a sudden it steamrolls, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars. Maybe you do a little jail time for some other little thing. They are, there, you for. are there civil asset forfeitures? Like the police yeah. just steal. Exactly. They just, they just steal from you yeah. all the time. Um, and, and then that's yeah. like, that, that's a big indicator too. Is like, why would you trust the system that they're going to steal from you after you haven't been, yeah. you, you know, you put up the system of law, they're going to steal from you and you've not yeah. actually been proven to do anything yeah. wrong. No, that's right. That's people are very sensitive to fair procedures because they're very sensitive to fairness. Mm-hmm. This I think is, um, an, an immigration, uh, sorry, not an immigration. This is a, um, this is actually a, uh, 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 an anthropological phenomenon where it may be that our sense of fairness develops in the tribe as there's some anthropology, ethnography on this, as the um, alpha males and, you know, extremely early Holom sapiens and before that would just, you know, do what they wanted, right? Mm-hmm. But eventually beta males figured out how to build coalitions in order to rein in the alpha males, for instance, to keep them from taking way more of the mammoth meat or whatever it was. Right. Um, and so eventually the sense of fairness that, that evolved hundreds of thousands of years ago 
um, but but I think becomes a lot more fine tuned in, in certain ways in the last hundred thousand years. Um, we have this sense of like there's cheating, and then there's fairness. And as society's grown more complex, we apply that fairness to larger and more compl- complicated institutions, a lot more com- complicated to manage, right? In the tribe, we could we could pay close attention, but you know, so our cheater detection modules, as some social psychologists call it, you know, get set off, and then that creates mistrust. And so you've mm-hmm. got to figure out what are the what are the forms of corruption that people care about. And then how do we reduce this so people's cheater detection modules aren't going off? This is one thing that I think has been big where the, you know, the right says, oh, Hillary's a cheater or the left says Trump's a cheater. You know, I mean, oh, the system is rigged. Trump says the system is rigged. Warren says the system is rigged. Everyone says the system is rigged, right? Mm -hmm. It's you motivate people because once you say they're cheating, they're cheating, then you go right after them. So, yeah, you want to prevent a big part of restoring trust is preventing cheating. Yeah. And, and, and that's it. Like the other reason I, I wanted to bring it up is, yeah. is don't get me wrong. We need to focus on corruption on, you know, of course, on the federal level, uh, yeah. corruption, even on the corporate level where yeah. there's a lot of narratives there that are creating a divide where, you know, yeah. If a corporation is getting all this money because of some, like, let's say, let's just lump some loophole that's super abstract and oversimplified. But then the idea is that those that, aren't as well off all of a sudden, you know, yeah. they feel like they're getting screwed. So yep. my, my point is, is like, okay, f- sure. Focus on that as well, but let's also focus on where people are directly getting screwed. And that is on the yeah. more on the local level where you see this more direct correlation. And not only that corporations are super powerful, obviously, yeah. like I said, should take on that corruption, but that is a, very hard feat to overcome, right? Just the way yeah. our system is set up. But on the local level, people, if people got out and got out there and got involved, they have a opportunity to have a direct effect on helping vast amounts of people's lives way more than on the national level. And that is And the little- other nice thing about that is when people get involved and start interacting with each other in, in their associations, that can also be trust increasing. Mm-hmm. So I have a whole chapter in the next book on freedom of association. Yeah. So, you know, get involved in local politics because with luck, you're going to interact with people you don't know and that are different from you. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be good for you and good for them. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I think, I think that's a good kind of way to somewhat in the conversation. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if you have any other closing thoughts for people and. Well, I mean, the, the, hopefully, I mean, people have gotten the sense for, uh, why the research I'm doing is, is, um, at least kind of interesting to think about or, or to think about, uh, uh more. And maybe I've got, I've probably got a lot of things wrong, uh, in lots of ways. And so I'd be interested to, to, uh, to hear is, you know, you get feedback on what, what people think. Mm-hmm. Of course, I also want to promote the book, uh, oh, Politics right, right. For restoring our trust in the open society that came out, uh, just last year. Um, that book is very much for your audience. Cause I, I wrote it for the philosophically inclined in order mm-hmm. to answer like this general challenge about like, does politics have to be war is what we're seeing just inevitable or all society is going to go in that direction. And I say no. Um, but I've also got a lot of work online and things like that where I'm talking a lot about reconciliation and, and different, different kinds of issues. So, you know, just, uh, plug the, plug the book. Um, then I've got this blog just 
it's just rec- just called Reconciled um, that you could find. I blog on these kinds of themes and issues about reasonable disagreement and religion and politics and um, polarization and all these uh, kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people will, will find of interest. Um, and in general, I guess the word I would leave people with is just trust. It's just let's be thinking hard about how we can increase trust in each other in the United States, what it would require. Let's think about what the costs are of not getting our not getting more of it and of letting things continue to go the direction that they're going in. So that's the mm-hmm. closing thought. It's just let's 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 think about the importance of restoring trust in each other in our main institutions. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, and I'll um, put your book stuff in the intro as well. Yeah, but great. but yeah, overall, yeah, I think I think you're onto something there is yeah, I think trust is a big issue that we need to reinsert. And a lot of various things will fall into place, whether it's just discourse in general, uh, reasonable disagreement in general, and yeah, things like that. But yep. yeah, I think it was a good discussion. And yeah, thanks for I coming on. Too.